Welcome to Voices Amped. Thanks for joining us. I'm Ellie Clark. And I'm Vanessa Becker-Weig, and we are your hosts. Voices Amped is a place for us to share space and lift the voices of artists, activists, community leaders, and organizers, all of whom have inspired us and our work. For any Ampers who aren't familiar with our work, we are Voices Amplified, formerly known as The Girl Project. You can learn more about our arts advocacy work or support us by going to VoicesAmplified.net. Thanks for listening. And remember, be curious, be courageous, take up space, and make some noise. Hey, Ampers, we are so excited to introduce you to our guests today, which include Johanna Maynard Edwards, who is the Executive Artistic Director of the Women's Theatre Festival, and Jamika Holloway, who is directing the Women's Theatre Festival's upcoming live virtual production of Othello by William Shakespeare in a modern verse translation by Mfaniso Udafia. Udafia seeks to pull no punches with her translation of Othello that starkly illuminates the overt anti-Black racist language within Shakespeare's text. A visionary director, Jamika Holloway is asking the tough questions like, should Othello continue to be produced? And what is the cost to the Black artists who participate in those productions? We talk with Jamika about her approach to directing Udafia's translation, key themes that her and her team are uncovering, challenges she has come up against in the process, and how she navigates caring for her team of artists who have taken on this incredibly challenging material. Tickets for Othello are on sale now and are pay what you can for every performance, April 8th, 9th, and 10th, and April 16th and 17th. All productions are at 8 p.m. The performance is virtual, so you can watch from anywhere. Get your tickets now at womenstheaterfestival.com and sit back, relax, and listen and enjoy our incredibly inspiring guests, Johanna Maynard Edwards and Jamika Holloway. Welcome and thanks for listening. This is Voices Amped. I'm Ellie Clark. And I'm Vanessa Becker-Weig, and we are your host. We are so excited today to introduce you to Johanna Maynard Edwards and Jamika Holloway from the Women's Theater Festival. Woohoo! Johanna Maynard Edwards, Maynard Edwards is the Executive Artistic Director of the Women's Theater Festival based in Raleigh, North Carolina. She is a director and a passionate arts educator, some of my favorite people in the world. She also serves on the SETC Equity, Diversity, Inclusion, and Access Task Force. She is a graduate of the NYU Tisch School of the Arts Playwrights Horizons Theater School. So awesome. Please visit www.womenstheaterfestival.com to find out more information about her and on Facebook at WTFNC and on Twitter and Instagram at WTF Festival at NC. Let me say that again WTF Festival NC. Great. And Jamika Holloway. Jamika is a freelance director and producer from Durham, North Carolina. Her directing work has appeared at Northern Stage in Vermont, 
Shakespeare in Detroit, Classic Stage in New York City, Durham Performing Arts Center, and Man, Bite Do Man Bites Dog Theater in Durham, the Department of Theater at Dartmouth College, Duke University's Department of Theater Studies and the National Black Theater Festival. You can, she's hiding, you can find Jamika and stalk her on Instagram at JDH Directed It. JDH Directed It. We are thrilled to talk to Johanna and Jamika today because these women. Um, are producing a show at the Women's Theater Festival. Jamika Holloway is directing a virtual live stream main stage production of Othello by William Shakespeare in a modern verse translation by Mfaniso Udofia, produced in partnership with Ashland, Oregon's play on Shakespeare. This will be the first fully realized production of Udofia's translation of Othello. It was originally commissioned by Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Udofia seeks to pull no punches with her translation that starkly illuminates the overt anti-Black racist language within Shakespeare's text. So Jamika is described by the Women's Theater Festival as a visionary director. <laughs> she is leading a team of creatives asking the tough questions. Should this work, Othello, ever be produced? And what is the cost to the Black artists who participate in it? So, Jamika, yeah. starting with you, can you tell us a little bit about Udofia's translation of Othello? Sure. So, um, like you said, Infonisa was commissioned by... Um, the play on Shakespeare organization, who at the time was um, an entity of Oregon Shakespeare Festival, they have since branched out and become their own nonprofit organization. Um, but play on Shakespeare um, gathered a ton of playwright, majority playwrights of color um, to translate these Shakespeare plays. And the goal was not to shift around the story at all, but really to just take the text and just update the references um, so, the, so that they, um, they are more modernized and rec recognizable by modern theater goers. Um, so actually, when you take a look at the text, it's very similar in verse to the original folio, the original Shakespeare. Um, Unfaniso's translation really wanted, I think, to just expose this play um, for the real detriment that it um, that it housed and the pervasiveness of this this text. Um, she's she's really gone back in, gone in, and and I've been saying like pulled off the layers, like stripped off the layers. It's that like moment of like yanking the band-aid off of a thing so you get that ouch um mm. afterward afterwards um and yeah she she really just sort of like highlights the um pervasiveness of of the language and it becomes um th there have been conversations before where people argue whether or not this play is about otherness or whether it's a specifically about anti-Black racism and her um, translation definitely pursues the latter argument. 
um, and she really unearths all of the derogatory ways that Othello is referred to throughout this, this script. Um, and that specifically indicates race and, and Blackness. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. Um, it's, it's amazing. I mean, I, I feel, you know, incredibly privileged to, to be working on Umfamiso's work. She's just, I think, one of the most um, intellectually driven playwrights of our time. And I, I just think she had such a brilliant mind, even the amount of times that we've been able, the small amount of times that we've been able to connect um, about this piece have just been very rich and informative. I think she's just a brilliant person. Mm. Johanna, I'm sure uh, WTF jumped at the chance to produce this kind of important work. <laughs> um, how did it end up there? Uh, well, Jamika, uh, we were we were partnering on a different project, and that kind of found um, an end point, and we still wanted to work together. And so I was just like, "What else is burning you up? What would you really love to work on?" Um, and she came back with this project and said those things she just said. <laughs> and um, Jamika's uh, envisioning of Umfaniso's work adds another layer, which is an all-female cast mm -hmm. and a majority Black and woman of color cast that adds another layer to the racism and the violence the racist violence in the language to also inform this um, internalized misogyny yeah. and uh, the, the violent way that um, our patriarchal framing treats women, mm -hmm. um, particularly women of color. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's challenging. Every scene of this play um, challenges the audience and challenges the artists making it um, in a really, I think, of the moment way. So Jamika, are, are you in North Carolina too? Are you there simply directing or are you a resident of from? Yeah, I'm, I'm a North Carolinian. I'm from Durham, North Carolina. Born, okay. You know, that's actually a lie. I always say that I'm not, I was not born here, but I've been here my entire life. I was actually born in, in Prince George County, Maryland, on Andrews Air Force Base. Sorry for the tangent. <laughs> but I always say I was born and raised here because I've spent my life here. Um, but yeah, I'm from North Carolina. I'm from Durham, North Carolina. Right. Um, so Jamika, we're interested in knowing your approach as a director, talking about how complicated this material can be, particularly for the actors diving in, spending yeah. hours looking at this material. Um, what is your approach to the material as a director? Yeah. Um, or, you know, the, immediately when taking on this piece, it, it dawned on me that this is a fellow and that this work um, has a lot of historically charged impl implications. And so I immediately knew that um, in order for, for me to take this work on, even though I was really passionate about it, I was really gonna have to think a lot around um, 
like what taking care of myself looked like while diving into you know this this work and as i dived into the work it became more and more stark why one needs to really take charge of of self-care invest in self-care while working around um working with this uh, particular material, I th you know, like, like I was saying before, the inflammatory and anti-racist, um, uh, the anti-Black racist language in the play, it's just so prevalent. And so I had to, you know, actually just in my work before the cast um, came about, really had to be very intentional around the t amount of time I spent with the play. And when I spent with the, the uh, how I managed my time. I did not want to spend three hours sitting with the play and then knowing that I was going to have um, to engage my daughter after that. So, you know, it would have to be something that I engaged even. So I was just very particular around how I even sat with the work. And then um, for, you know, for me, that just informed the way that I knew I had to take care of this process and center the actors um, and their well-being before this idea of product and production. Um, so in, in my rehearsal rooms, I spend a, a very significant amount of time building relationships with the actors. Um, and then also wanting to, you know, encouraging them to forge their own relationships, you know, as an ensemble. So my, my approach is very conversation driven. Like I like to start with like what's happening up here, like what's happening at the heart um, level, you know, level of the work. Um, again, people first, because I, as actors, people are, there's a lot, obviously a lot that people can research, but people are bringing um, their personal experiences and perspective to the work. So it's also very important for me um, that they feel um, that they trust me enough to bring themselves in that way. So really that like conversation and just like getting to know you aspect that I think people assume is so uh, rudimentary in a process actually be, becomes like really grounded in the ongoingness of my process. It's not a table week sort of situation. It's, it, it's this ongoing process. Mm. Um, just recognizing that trust is something that has to be earned. And it's a mistake to think that our actors are going to come into a room and like innately just trust us. These actors, you know, actors in 2020 and, it, and even before this are really coming into these rooms, like really understanding what trauma has looked like. Like. And my one of my biggest goals as a director um, is to not be wanting to really stay in front of inflicting more harm in my process. I think I recognize too that a lot of my actors are coming to me um, like wounded from their undergraduate or uh, MFA programs where they have not seen themselves represented in the work that's been chosen for them or even in the people who helm the work, you know, as directors and things. So they're, you know, we, we have a um, all black film creative team as well. And people came into the room and said, I've never had a black voice coach. And I'm like, these are, you know, black artists in the room who've never had a black voice coach. And, um, and they're in their twenties, you know, they're like, so, so I, you know, understand that this room, the importance of the room that I'm curating um, for the conduciveness of, um, for, 
Yeah, I, I just want it to be conducive for bold choice making and truthfulness and honesty. And so, so much of that work just comes from relationship building. Um, and it takes us a long way through the performance and character development process. I'm sorry to have taken up so much time. No, we love it. This is what it's all about. This is what we want to hear about. And I'm, I'm interested too, um, were these actors that you had worked with previously, was this an open audition process? Are these actors coming from everywhere? Are they centrally coming or predominantly coming from North Carolina? So we've got a good group of folks who have some sort of ties to North Carolina, but also we have folks from all over, um, the, the country, um, who are part of this. And as a matter of fact, we had international uh, audition. We had somebody, I think mm. someone came into our room and they were from Malaysia. Um, so we, it, we, there was a magnitude of folks who were interested in this process. Um, at the onset, um, we put out the casting notice and I'm like, yeah, just tell everybody to just email me their headshots and resume. And then like two weeks, it, no, maybe three days in, I'm like, hey, Helen, Johanna and Casey, like, I'm overwhelmed. Please take this away from me. I'm not a casting director. Take this away from me. Because we were just so moved by the amount of impressions that um, open call. Hundreds off. within just a couple of days. And Johanna, I think as theater, as people who are, you know, as an artistic executive director of a company, we while we feel totally limited to this Zoom world and we're live theater practitioners, all of a sudden you're doing a virtual show and I'm sure your numbers were outrageous compared to what you typically see. Is that true? Yes, but I think it has more, again, more to do with the this material yeah. and the care with which it was put forth into the world. A lot of people told us that it was the best casting notice they'd ever seen. Like people just responded to the casting notice, to what the choices within the production were going to be. And that's something that as a team, we, we, we made sure to nail down, like Tarika and I and other people on the team sent that casting notice back and forth for like, two weeks before we put it out. And, and that type of uh, care and attention and effort paid off, which then Jim, like Jamika saying within the rehearsal process, she's reinforcing that. Yeah. And in the audition process she did, like the longest portions of time that we took were in these virtual callbacks where she started these conversations with these actors and, and that, the conversations that started in the audition room, the ones that sparked are the most, because there was, I mean, there was an embarrassment of riches. Jamaica could have cast the show three times over with the brilliant uh. folks, but it's the ones that were sparked and the ones that were like, these people had to be put into a room to have these conversations, to tell this story right now. And that's, that's what she's been able to do. Yeah. So um, the term anti-Black racist obviously has come up already multiple times in our discussion um, as one of the major, I, I don't know if that would be considered a theme, but mm -hmm. what, what are some of the themes you're uncovering or unearthing in this process? And has yeah. anything come up that's totally surprised you that came up within the context of all the actors being in the room? 
Yeah, so we, we, we've actually, I mean, yeah, <laughs> uh, there are no sort of themes that are being unearthed in, in this play. And um, so I, I guess to start, yes, anti-Blackness and community of colors, communities of color um, is a theme that we're reckoning with here, internalized misogyny, also, you know, really taking a hard look at um, the, the cultures of these predominantly white institutions and what the ramifications of them often are on um, Black folk, express, ex, Black women in particular in this piece. Um, when we look at, um, so, so we have set our show in um, Venice College. Um, you know, the original takes place in, in Venice and then Cyprus. And so we've created Venice College and Venice College is this um, all women's predominantly white historic institution. So you you can think of your like um, Mount Holyoke's, Wellesley's, Sarah Lawrence, um, you know, things like that. But it's a very high stakes culture um, that really um, um, induces stress and, um, and anxiety around academic rigor and competitiveness. Um, so yeah, we, I'm trying to think, what else are we, colorism, <laughs> relationship tropes, like how, you know, how um, femme identifying folks are often um, trophied in relationships and like what are the impacts of, of that and, um, yeah, we've, there's a wealth of riches to be unearthed here. I'm sorry, I, didn't, I don't have like a list of things, but yeah, anti-blackization of queer bodies and sexuality. Um, yes. Since it's all, all women, you know, Desdemona and Othello are women. Iago mm. and Iago's wife, they're all, they're women. <laughs> and so that, um, all that language that is there within the text, women are speaking it to each other. And, and we, we are only shifting um, pronouns around. So the she and the hers, but still in the text live the lords and the my husbands and my wife. So we get a chance to really get the opportunity to investigate um, how this like um, incredibly feminine space still operates inside the gaze of um, patriarchy. Yeah. Damn. <laughs> um, so it's so much. Um, uh, I, I know this question is obvious from what we've heard, but I think we're wrestling with this as we're not seeing enough new contemporary um, plays being performed in theaters, right? We're seeing a lot of a lot of shows we've seen a lot of, and people aren't asking the question enough, why this play right now? Why do we need to see it this month, this year, uh, this end of the pandemic? Like why, and this is a question for either or both of you, but why as you've worked and been in the room and read the material and knew you wanted to do it with Johanna at the Women's Theater Festival, why, why do you think it's so important for people to see this production this coming month? Um, I, I think when I look back at um, how, how things have transpired for the, the world 
over the last um, 12 months since the onset of the pandemic and then the social unrest of last summer and um, even, you know, more specifically tied to theater, theater artists coming out with the We See You Now. Mm-hmm. And we, we see you um, documents. And I think people are really taking a hard look around like what, um, what the culture is like for POCs at predominantly white institutions and um, looking at how ingrained our culture is in these systems of white supremacy and systems that suppress and oppress voices of color and women and trans and non-binary folks and queer folks. Um, And for me, I think there has never been this opportunity to see um, this, to to see this particular story exemplified on the stage. Um, and I, you know, I feel really charged to present this, um, this material in this way because I think it just resonates with so many of the conversations that we're having around like how to shift, shift the culture and uh, shift the culture at PW, PWIs and then also like what divestment from those cultures look like. Um, and just the reasons why that divestment is like um, more and more necessary. These environments have really um, set black women up to fail, have been violent in the ways of like gaslighting and uh, microaggressions. And, we, and, and I think that's one of the things that this play also unearths is the how strategic um, Iago's plan is, it's mathematical. Like it really want, it, it, the aim is to disrupt. It's not just to bring down, but it's to disrupt and dispossess and to disenfranchise. And there's like a mathematicalness behind the scheme um, that this, this play is unearthing. And I, and I think that's the reality of, of systemic racism, right? Like the, the conversations were had in the dark and in basements and in closed door rooms about how to displace black folks and blackness and, and this work again, just like amplifies um, the surgicalness of it. Johanna, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, all of that. And Women's Theater Festival is a PWI that has set black women up for failure, that has caused harm to black women. That is a truth about this organization. And we can't move forward without digging into that and doing repair and really, really, really honestly trying to do repair for that. We could have done a quote unquote black woman show that didn't make us look inward that could have allowed us to not rip a band-aid off that could have allowed us to you know tiptoe through the daisies together and I'm not interested in that um because because I'm, I'm interested more in the truth and I'm interested more in like Janika says like how how can we come how can we look at it all and come to a place that is more just that that we have taken apart the things that are broken and built something back together, or if it can't be, divest, yeah. break it, then break the whole thing down. And I think 
Othello is particularly ripe for that because let's be honest, this is a pro in best of times in 2021, this is a problematic text. And so we, so we're going to look at it. We're going to like turn on our stark little ring lights, both literally and figuratively. And we're going to put these words in the mouths of mostly black women to say, them. and if they can't say these words and our audience hear them and be like, Ooh, I don't think that's okay to say these things. Anymore. I don't, Ooh, I don't think we should be calling someone that then, then let's, then let's fucking get rid of this play for good. You know, like, yeah. like let this be the litmus test for this play. And to finish answering the question, why right now? Because Breonna Taylor was murdered in her bed last year because eight people were murdered last week, most of them Asian women, because only 13% of the female population is black, but 40% of the maternal deaths are. Yep, I had to just look at the quote that's sitting on my wall. These, th these are the thing, these are the reasons why that we have got to look at the physical, emotional and mental harm that is being done to black women and other women of color right here, right now. And even in our theater companies, we have to look at that. If not us, who? If not now, when, right? Right. Um, I'm, I live in Atlanta, Fulton County. It hit, it's very, um, it's been a very interesting week, off-putting to say the least. Feels very off balance here. Um, so it's a virtual live stream production. Are all the actors going to be in their own Zoom square? Will they be in a space live streamed are you allowed to give me any of this information people buying tickets what what can you give me insight into what the experience will be like yeah so they are all uh, streaming in from their bedrooms living rooms bathrooms where you know, wherever <laughs> folks have set up their um their home studios so you'll we'll we will have we have beautiful technicians who are creating this beautiful like um, I don't know, lands techno virtual landscape for us, um, but everybody will be zooming in from their 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 home spaces across the country from Chicago to L.A. to um, Ohio and yeah all all over the all over the place I think. Um, in Texas, so, we've got so did designers send things to these folks or are they setting up their own space oh yeah so they so we, they are setting up their own space but also under um clear supervision and direction from our technical director um costume designer has also been shipping things all over um, the, the country so everything they need to rig up their spaces, we're providing all of the costumes and people are being sent props, champagne flutes and, you know, things like that. And uh, handkerchiefs. Yeah, handkerchiefs and- <laughs> Of course. Yes, and the diamond rings, Kim Kardashian sauce, diamond <laughs> rings. And so people have been posting on the Women's Theater Festival um, page too. So check out the Facebook story. It's, um, people continue to post their costumes coming in props. And then from there, the designers and technicians will create this world through broadcasting software and take all those inputs of actor feeds and um, Women's Theater Festival is committed to uh, live open captioning every one of our productions. So the caption scripts will be built in. Um, our brilliant sound designer, Aurelia Belfield has created a sonic landscape that will be 
again, all of these things will be put together in the broadcasting software and then come out magically on the other end wow. um, through, through a private YouTube link. Wow. I would love to jump in here and ask Johanna as I'm, I'm listening to all of this. I've had a few different questions come up. So if I circle back too much, I apologize. But this um, director and producer wants to know some answers. <laughs> so I'm curious, um, Jamika, if I can just circle back for a moment about the development of relationships in the Zoom room. And do you have any just, I'm curious about for any directors, theater artists out there, any specific, um, I guess, techniques or the way you try, you try to share an intimate space over Zoom? Do you have anything, maybe one or two things that you try to do that you're willing to, secrets you're willing to share? <laughs> yeah, I, I will. Um, I, one of the things that, um, I have been trying to do it is understand that what we had in physical space cannot be recreated, right? It cannot be recreated, but like, what are all of the ways we can pull like remnants of those things into the room with us? And so when I am in, 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 in uh, physical space, um, typically one of the things that happens when the actors entering my rehearsal space it's like I'm jamming to you know what some tunes and you know their vibes and so when people come into the rehearsal room we they, um first of all we have two options for folks um just thinking about like the ways that people come into rehearsals some people um want to you know feel want to go more inward and rehearse lines and just sit and breathe and then there are other folks who want to be more interactive and social and so we've created these two spaces one where um at one green room where breakout room, green room you know yeah. um where <laughs> where actors can go and um and hear sound baths nature soundscapes and and things like that um janae Aiko is one of my favorite um progressive r&b artists who incorporates a lot a lot of tahitian bells and sound bowls in into her work and then um we have a turn up room too where you can go and get like your cardi b and you're making a stallion and like <laughs> Bill Woods and Liga, lizzo and um and you know and 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 you know just be in more in a more active space, a space that's more conducive for conversation, but we wanted to hold space for all of the different ways that people like to show up in rehearsal. And I think that that has all, that has been like a launching pad. People came and were so grateful that that space was offered to them. And it's those little things that start these really robust conversations around why is important. And then those conversations like make us closer and give us more insight on who each other are and how we show up in space and in community with one another. So it's like those little things that really become pillars for how we move um, throughout the entire process. Um, so that's the, the curation of those breakout rooms is one of the things. And um, I think, you know, the other thing is we, we made a, we had a pact, we made an understanding that we understood this text was very dark and wicked in a lot of ways, but like, what are all of the ways that we can still center joy? Mm -hmm. So during our rehearsal breaks, like we're playing like 
Whitney Houston's I Wanna Dance With Somebody and Destiny's Child's Jumpin' Jumpin', like songs that people can like easily sing along to and, you know, think things that are familiar. So like just little small things like that, I think have been the pillar of what we've been able to, uh, to brew up as an ensemble. Well, I love, I love the words that you've used a couple times, um, you know, curating the rehearsal room. Um, I think that as we're moving forward and we've had this experience in these virtual spaces, we've really had to make choices in that way and really give attention to that. I I work a lot with young people and it's, you know, you you do have to curate a room when they're having Zoom fatigue. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. And um, Johanna, I was wondering you know, as you, as a producer, as you're moving forward and we are starting to perhaps shift out of this crazy time, um, do you feel that, you know, the virtual spaces you've been created, you're going to continue with that? There'll be some hybrid situations going on? Yes. Yeah. To me, the success of virtual work has a lot to do with access, um, which is a big old passion of mine. And I I think we've learned, well, me as a person who identifies as sometimes disabled, um, I I have an autoimmune disease that when I'm having a flare, I can't leave the house and sometimes I really can't even leave bed. So being able to participate in so much theater (laughs) without having to drag a tired body down to downtown Raleigh to rehearsal, to have to stand behind the customer service desk at the ticket counter and welcome all of our guests in. The fact that I can do that from a a comfy spot has created a ton of accessibility just for me. Um, And we have found that we are letting, we're able to work with artists from all over. And I just don't, like, why would we say, okay, well, that was really fun while we could work with you, but now by, unless you can fly to Raleigh. Um, and, and the world, if we're becoming more digital, we're becoming more virtual, why not hybridize? Why not? And it's just good business. See, I have a million reasons why we should keep doing this. It's just good business, right? If you have a live audience who wants to come in live and a virtual audience who wants to stream in and both want to pay money to, have that exchange of art, <laughs> like let's let them do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's also very exciting ways to incorporate more VR into the work. Like what could it be if some characters are brought in virtually and some are physically present? You know, there's there's just a wealth of possibility and it's the way our culture is moving. We are TikTok musicals now. Like we, this is who we are. Why? Why wouldn't theater want to keep the heartbeat of this as well? Yeah, I have a friend in LA. We've been talking about him and one of our alumni. One of our alumni, Rafis Imel, who we just released this past week um, in in one of our podcasts, is studying and getting her PhD in virtual reality. And she wants to tie it to film and television, theater, go to universities, work. And we have another friend who's worked with us who's in Los Angeles and his university is sending out virtual reality stuff to actors to work in their space is so fascinating. Um, And 
you know, this idea of curating the room. Yes, I'm going to go a little bit further with this. I, we, again, we're talking to Shamara Julquachi about having, using our homes and our private space for public use. And I think not, I've done a, several readings in the Zoom room, but I haven't gone after a play, particularly challenging material that is going to bring up a lot emotionally. And it reminds me how ceremonial it is to walk out of a rehearsal space where you've put it all and be able to leave it there to come back to it. Um, and the fact that once this rehearsal is over for you all, you turn off your computer, you're still in that space and potentially alone, you know, people, people living alone who have been isolated for long periods of time. Um, so I, I guess I, I don't want to sound naive in asking this question because as complicated as the material is, has it felt for you, Jamiko, or your cast that some relief of shining a light on on these themes and this idea that this play potentially should be put by the wayside or archived for good. Um, is there any healing to it? And when you, when you are left in your home after the rehearsal, do you feel any sense of healing or joy from having the opportunity to shine a light here? Well, I will say that the work, the material in particular, um, you know, when we when we really take a look at at it in totality, there's not much joy to be gleaned from it at all. I mean, it is it is a cacophony of of violence, um, psychological and um, and emotionally and, and and physical. But the uh, but I will say. And again, this just goes back to the community in the room and like having those like dance parties and like taking that extra five minutes to let the actors across the Zoom call talk about their doggy closets, you know, things like things like that, I think have been like the biggest, um, we've just centered so much joy in the process of being together that that's what we're able to take away from the room. I mean, people are, one of the actors posted today on her Facebook and she was saying something about how joyful the room is. And it really has nothing to do with the material at all. Like there's really no way to sift much joy from watching the disembodiment of, you know, this, this black woman um, or in this particular production, but you know, overall of a, of a black person in general, um, but the relationships I think that we have been uh, forging and the, again, the conversations that we're able to have around this play have been the things that, um, that I think have, have lifted us. Um, but overall, no, we, and I think that we also had uh, at the top of our rehearsal process, each one of the actors sort of shared with us what their ritual for stepping out of rehearsal is. And the woman who plays Othello, she actually says, as soon as rehearsal ends for her, she goes and washes her face. It doesn't matter if she has on makeup at all, but it's just the ritual of like getting out of it. It's that like stepping over the threshold that you were talking about in physical space, you know, crossing, exiting the room. Um, so 
yeah, I don't think we've been able to glean a lot of joy from the script, but the relationship and the bonds that we've been building have just been the light um, throughout this tunnel. Because it, it, I mean, it really is a, it really is a tunnel. I mean, from beginning to end, we start this play. Iago is saying, "I hate this date," you know, and 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 then that is what we're sitting with for the next hour and a half, two hours. So, um, and 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 every step of the way, what we're watching is Iago charm his way, her way, sorry, into being somebody that Othello becomes psychologically dependent on and so there's it's a it's a it's a dark play it's a very dark play but it's just the the relationship that we've been able to, to center and i'd love to just affirm the role of intimacy directors even in virtual work mm. um, and in this case monet noel marshall um who for this work having her as intimacy director and dramaturg has been an incredible combo job because what 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 is needed from a virtual intimacy director is so intrinsically tied to what's in this text and how the the people who have to speak the text and engage with the text are personally interacting with it um i know jamaica can talk more about their partnership but I, I hope I hope if people get anything out of this, don't skip that step. Just because if you're producing virtual theater uh, with tough ideas, you're in, an intimacy director can really support that work. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what she's doing in the rehearsal room, Jamika? Um, sure. And I think you know, mostly the you know, and I think intimacy directing is also one of those. Um, modalities very similar to directing that has to shift slightly you know room to room like as a director I, I have to like show up with, you know slightly different just based on the needs of the folks in, in in my space and you know I think the work of intimacy director is doing that too and so so much of the work that we have done around intimacy there's um not a obviously in this virtual world there's not a like uh, there's not a lot of like physical intimacy right like people being able to touch. So we're not navigating those particular waters. But I think the things that Monet has come into the room and um, and reminding us of and working with us through is taking stock of what this sort of work does to a person's um, um, emotional sensibilities and um, the conversations that we're having around Othello's mental, uh, Othello's mental health struggles um we're also we also want to be making sure that we're including um we don't want to be projecting like what that looks like onto the actors and you know we're having conversations about like what does this look like for you um so so i think just like really getting just really wanting to take care of like all of the wanting to remind the actors that this goes beyond acting and there's a portion of this that really um, that really sits with you. And that's the thing that we wanna take care of, right? Because you're an actor, right? You're, you're trained to come in and take on the roles, right? That's the technical aspect of it. Um, but I think what Monet has really been um, encouraging our actors to, um, to lean into is like, what are the real 
psychological and emotional impacts that you're taking home with you um, after rehearsal and how, what is the work that we need to do to make whatever that is, whatever that feels like, however it's gonna show up for you, I'm a little bit more, a little bit easier to manage. Mm -hmm. um, I know that one of the very first things you said is we, our intention can't be product oriented, right? has to be this process. So I just wonder from both of you what you anticipate or do you try not to anticipate, but what do you anticipate and the audience response being to this? And have you curated any spaces for talking back, asking questions? Is it after every performance, will talkbacks not exist? Um, what do you anticipate as, as you start um, playing for an audience? Yeah, so we've been thinking a lot about um, the intersectionality of, you know, of, of our audience and wanting to be very also like intentional around the, the conversations that this play is going to be having with each, uh, you know, audience group. And so there is, um, we've actually curated a care package for Black audience members, how do you take care of yourself like during this play when, um, when moments are, you know, emotionally charged um, or you feel, um, you feel struck by something. We've, you know, crafted this um, Black joy breakout room for folks to enter. And the work we're doing now is trying to figure out how we can also stream the show in the breakout room so that folks who want to process while they watch have the space to do that. Um, we are you know, curating very specific information for the PLC um, uh, community, PLC communities, people of color, um, around the different things, themes that come up for them in, in this work. And then we've got some questions for white folks about how you see yourself in, in this character. And so the work is there. It's like you wanna be providing care um, and attention to the needs of, you know, the, the POC, people of color who are gonna come in the space. And then also wanna ask the white folks to do some hard investigation and internal investigation and reflection. So we've got these packages set up for, um, and post-show conversations, we, we, there are some recorded um, post-show conversations that we are going to engage, but also understand that like the, the women, the Black folk and the women of color who are part of this cast are already doing such heavy lifting and so much labor that the work of like talking back and playing Google for audience members is not theirs. Playing so Google <laughs> for audience members. I love that. <laughs> so we, we want to equip, we want to tool people with some resources where they can find more information, but also recognizing that that's not the work of the actors who have already done a heavy lift of this full, we're, we're not cutting the show, you know. It's a long show. It's a long show. Um, they've already done the heavy, heavy lift. Wow. And, and um, one of the things that we've talked about some was not having an immediate post-show talk back, but curating a space like a week later, particularly for white audiences and general audience conversation. 
Um, because part of what Mfaniso is after here is for white people to sit in their discomfort. And maybe the best thing isn't for us to process, we, us, we as white people, to process these thoughts out loud in a group right afterwards. Maybe mm -hmm. we should take time and sit in our discomfort mm -hmm. and sit with these questions and thoughts for a while before processing them out loud. I know that's a novel concept for us, but I think we could try it. And, sit with, and, and then, you know, also, I think the, the other part to that is like sit with yourselves, right? Like not in not processing. I think one of the spaces that we that a lot of theaters have set up and not have and have not yet taken stock of what the harm is, is like what that post-show processing feels like for the marginalized people in those uh, in those rooms. So as um, when, you know, when we're performing racially charged work and then and, and white folks feel inclined to process in those rooms, they they very quickly become unsafe and triggering for black folks and pe people of color and marginalized folks who have lived the experiences that, you know, white folks are trying to figure out their role, process their role in. Um, yeah. So that's something to think about, like how uh, affinity groups for processing. Um, I think that comes at a, a time where like, White folks have to like do that work alone. Yeah. Um, as as we're wrapping up this conversation and moving into our campfire, I just want to ask you, Jamika, and you, Johanna, is there anything we haven't asked that you would like to share? Um, I, I want to go ahead and say now because you've been so captivating to listen to that I'm reminding everyone that you can purchase tickets for this virtual show at womenstheaterfestival.com. Uh, it is on their homepage. Um, so just in case you didn't catch that information before, but Johanna and Jamika, is there anything that we haven't talked about in regards to the show that you would like to wrap up with? No. I'll just say in regards to those tickets, um, tickets are actually a pay what you can donation. So don't be surprised when you go to our website and then it takes you over to Eventbrite and the only button to click is donation where you get to name the price that you pay for this work. Um, and we, we have right on there that in order to make our budget, we need $7,500 in ticket sales uh, and anything above that gets just split into shares on top of the artist's stipends when Women's Theater Festival is not trying to carry over um, a profit from this show into other things. Um, we're just trying to connect audiences and artists around these ideas. So truly come pay what you can. If you can pay a dollar, that's great. Come engage. If you can pay $50, because you want to pay for the excellence of this art and you want it to go in these artist pockets, do that. Great, thank you, accessibility. Yeah, Vanessa and I talked about it in our podcast, like how are we making this accessible? That's fantastic. And Jamaica, anything you wanna follow up, wrap up with? Um, I will just uh, wrap up with a shout out to the amazing designers and um, members of the creative team. So as we've mentioned um, in the conversation already, we have Monet Marshall, Monet Noel Marshall, who is 
our dramaturg and intimacy director, Tia James, who is our voice and text coach, uh, Aquila Butler, who is our, our fabulous and fly costume designer, and we have Aurelia Belleville, who is a genius sound designer and audio engineer. Um, and who else? Kiana Alexander, yeah. who is our virtual director. And um, I'm just excited to shout these women out they, and their brilliance and their just willingness to be such amazing collaborators. And we usually get to inspirational questions, um, but I really want to keep it about the show and the work. But the one inspirational question I have to ask you both, if is there any one greatest piece of advice that you've ever been given, or is there one greatest piece of advice that you give that you can share with our listeners? Jamika, if you want to go first, I don't mean to put you on the spot. So Johanna, you can go first as well. Um, no, you know, uh, I think the best piece of advice, I've been given a lot of advice, a lot of, I've been, you know, so blessed to be. I'm surrounded by a ton of sageness throughout my life. Um, but I'll say something as simple as um, if you are, if you're the smartest person in the room, you need to like find another room. Y'all know if there's a variation of that. And I think um, for me, that is just, that has just been like a high light in my life. I always want to surround myself with people who I'm going to learn and glean from and feel inspired by and so even in my um my work with actors i'm always welcoming their brilliance into the conversation um you know never the director who thinks that i have the best choices but, you know who i'm making the best I, I have the best ideas and i'm making all of the best choices in the room i always want to be in the room but with people who i'm going to be um, incited by and inspired by um, so I never want to be the smartest person in the room. I always want to be in, in rooms with people who I feel like I'm going to grow and learn from. So I know that's pretty cliche, but it's been the best advice that I've ever been given or have really had. It's great. Johanna. Well, I am going to go with some advice from looking up on my wall. Um, I've been putting the good thoughts or the things I need to keep thinking about on post-it notes around me. And um, this one is from, again, our friend Monet Noel Marshall. I only want you to do this work if you can do it with care and abundance. And that is really, really good advice. Yes. Thank you. Thank you both for that. Um, so we'll move into our campfire section. And I know we sent you a little uh, guest booklet with what this section of the podcast is. But for our listeners who don't know, uh, campfire is a moment for our guests to share inspiration with our listeners and us <laughs> selfishly. Um, the campfire represents storytelling in an intimate setting that is unique to the people who are present and listening. Um, in our activism work, we refer to this as the closed container or circling. So, um, Johanna, would you like to share first? I feel like for our listeners, this is a visual. We got a sneak peek at this, but Johanna. Yeah, and I'll, I'll do an audio description of it. Um, but yes, my campfire piece is a visual piece. I'm holding up right now a... Um, 
copy of an old black and white photograph of one of my ancestors. This is my grandmother's mother who I never met, who she only knew for the first five years of her life. Um, this woman's name is Mary Engler. This photograph or like it wasn't even photographs back then as I was telling the ladies earlier. Um, it's one of those like really, really old things where they draw they take a photo, but then photograph, but then they draw in most of the details. Um, and this was taken uh, approximately around her age 18. Um, I'd been called to connect to her through some work that I have been doing in uh, different circles with groundwater arts and the idea of decolonizing my theater practice. Um, which they define decolonizing is getting back to your indigenous life ways. Well, this woman is um, my ancestor and my indigenous, my indigenous roots. Um, my grandmother believes that she was a member of the Cherokee Nation, um, but because of uh, the way because of the way colonizing is, um, my grandmother doesn't have great records of her ancestry of her mother, of her mother's mother, um, only has a few details. And uh, I was doing a playwriting exercise uh, with a woman, Tara Moses, who was a member of the Seminole Nation and is from Seminole, Oklahoma, which is where my grand, where this woman moved my grandmother from Tennessee almost a hundred years, a really long time ago. Um, and uh, I began writing a monologue from her perspective. And then I called my grandmother to tell her that. So my grandmother sent me one of the three photographs she has of her mother. And so wow. this is my campfire. This is my story for now. That is beautiful. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that with us, Johanna. So beautiful. Yes, and reminder to our listeners, you can watch this interview on YouTube if you prefer to see and listen, um, and you'll be able to see the picture there. Jamika, what are you going to share? Um, I just wanted to share this, this quote that is um, one that I, I just hold really dear um, by Octavia Butler, and um, it has been... Um, echoed throughout um, eight, a lot of Adrian Marie Brown's work, if you guys are familiar with pleasure activism or um, emergent strategy. Mm -hmm. um, but the quote is, all that you touch, you change. All that you change, changes you. The only lasting truth is change. God is change. Um, and it, there has just been uh, a plethora of of change and shift that has happened in my life over the last couple of years. And then, you know, the pandemic and that shifted us, us all. I think, it, you know, it's just um, become even more pressing for me in the last year um, that rather than try to protect ourselves from the reality or the pers persistence of change, um, it's important that we just develop a perspective that's rooted in understanding that change is the center of life and every single thing we'll do and, and understanding that I think makes space for us to enact agency and authority in the midst of um, 
of radical instability and, and these constantly shifting realities. So the only lasting truth is change. God is change. It must be embraced. <laughs> Boy, did I need to hear that. <laughs> I'm sure everyone did. That was yeah, beautiful. Thanks. That was great. Thank you. You both have been incredibly inspiring in, in so many ways. And I'm so, um, I'm grateful for the work that you're doing. And, uh, Johanna, I would, I would say specifically this past year at the women's theater festival, which I encourage all of our listeners to participate in the women's theater festival coming up this summer. But, um, there was a lot of talk about accessibility and I, truly appreciate the fact that you all are walking the walk and talking the talk. It's, it's really something to aspire to do. So thank you for that. Um, I'm going to wrap us up with some fun, rapid response questions. It makes us all feel like we're on the actor's studio when we do this. So we really like it. Um, so these are rapid response, you know, really quick. We're all wordy people, but we're going to try to be quick. And all of us get to play um, this round. So I think what we'll do, we'll just, let's just go um, in an order and, and we'll go, I'm going to go all, around my screen here. So we're going to go Jamika, Johanna, and then Ellie will respond. And then if I feel like responding, I'll respond. We'll see. I don't know. Okay. So here we go. What's the first play you saw that made a lifelong impression on you, Jamika? As you like it. Gosh, um, uh, I think it, I'm so embarrassed to say Phantom of the Opera, but it was like I was driven to Louisville and cried all the way home. Oh, I, I listen, a ton of people would have that answer. Yeah, <laughs> that popped into my head, Ellie, but actually, that was the second. Les Mis was the first one for me. Okay, uh, what's the best play you've seen in the last three years? Play I directed. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Wait, I'm so sorry. I was not okay. I directed. It's called Citrus by Celeste Jennings. If you don't know Celeste Jennings, put Celeste Jennings on your radar. You will know her name. Citrus. Okay, writing Citrus. it down. Got it. We're all taking notes. <laughs> Johanna. I don't know. I'm drawing a blank. Because I have a hard time with the best of any of them. Like, but there's just everything was so great. Three and three years. I'm like, what year do we go back to? Calculating. Um, I'm going to. I'm going to shout. Look, I'm just going to shout out another of Jamika's play. Um, the stage read, not, and it wasn't even a stage reading. It was a garage reading of uh, "Is God Is" by Alicia Harris. And it was intimate and it was the text reigned supreme and it was lovely. The name of it again? Is God Is by Alicia Harris. Is. Yeah. Uh, for it's so good. Okay, got yeah. it. Another note taken. Um, my last three years best play, hands down, easy, slave play. I can't. Yeah, I'm too. Yeah. Hmm. I'm going to say The Minutes by Tracy Letts. Oh, I love The Minutes. Okay. Okay. It's very exciting. Um, 
I'm going to skip a few because I don't like that one. Okay. Um, all right. This is a quick, and it's just oars. Comedy or tragedy? Tragedy. 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 <laughs> yeah, I need to laugh. Yeah, maybe because you're immersed in. It's <laughs> <laughs> so, a tough one, I think. New York theater or regional theater? I'm like, that's not tough at all. It's regional <laughs> theater. <laughs> How about you, yeah, no, Definitely regional theater for me as well. Uh, regional theater. Yeah, I'm, I'm regional theater. I'm, I'm right I, there. I think even when we think, but if we were to think New York theater, I would say like the things that you see downtown or in garages in Brooklyn, you know, yes. um, at La Mama and Club Thumb and some of the more like scrappy theater is where I've seen some of the best New York theater. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, okay, so this last question is, uh, there's been a lot I've, I've noticed recently during the pandemic, a lot of plays that have turned into screenplays. And, and so I, I I'm going to pose this question. What screenplay adapted from a play was the most successful in your opinion? Jamika. Oh my God. Um, I say <laughs> Fences or Ma Rainey's. Ma Rainey's. They, they both, were of both of them. Glorious. Yes. I haven't watched Ma Rainey's yet. So good. But so good. Uh, look, you want me to flex a minute? It's partly because I I was privileged to know Chad Bozeman and like I have not been able to like oh. deal. I, I have a photo like over here in my office. My son has been taking around. He's like, this is mommy and Black Panther. But like, I just, and so all, uh, so all that to say, yes, Fences is just one of the best from a piece of theater to a film ever. But I don't watch a lot of films, but that doesn't mean that it's not great. It, it's great. It's great. I just don't, I don't watch a lot of movies. My, mine is definitely Fences. Yeah. And, and mine would be Ma Rainey. I was just so, so impressed with that. Well, thank you so much for answering our rapid response questions. We are so excited to, I can't wait to see Othello. I just can't wait. And we want to remind our audiences to go to the women's theaterfestival.com to get tickets. Anything else you want to, to let us know about that, Johanna? I mean, please get your tickets. Uh, if you'd like to make producers happy, get produce, get your tickets early instead of like the minute before the show. Um, but also know that, like Jamika said, that care packages are coming. So especially if you are a person of color, um, get your tickets early and, to make sure that you get all the resources and have enough time to really digest them and enjoy them and dig in. Um, so that's a benefit. So get those tickets early. And yeah, like Vanessa said, uh, the the Women's Theater Festival is coming up in July and it is all virtual once again. And we are looking for our virtual WT Fringe production submissions and conference session submissions. And um, I can give just a hint of a spoiler that we have already secured some dynamite talent to be a part of this year's Women's Theater Festival. 
That's fantastic. And that's womenstheaterfestival.com. You can also follow Jamika Holloway on Instagram at JDH directed it. Mm -hmm. And a reminder for all the words that were said, it is a virtual live stream main stage production of Othello by William Shakespeare in a modern verse translation, not adaptation, translation by Infaniso Udafia. I want to say the S first. I'm so sorry. Produced in partnership with Ashland, Oregon's Play on Shakespeare. So that's what you you play on Shakespeare. Thank you, you, Foundation. Thank you, Raleigh Arts Commission. Thank you, all (laughs) of our funders. Thank you so much for being in the space with us today. We really encourage our listeners to support this work. We will share all of this information on our Instagram and Facebook page as well. So look for it there if you need further information. Vanessa, anything from you? I don't think so. Just floored by, by you all. So thank you. Thank you for doing the work and walking the Bravo. walk. Yes. Hey, Ampers. It's Margaret McLadry, your research and advocacy director for Voices Amplified. Are you as amped as I am by that interview with Joanna Maynard Edwards and Jamika Holloway? Then take some amped actions to check out the artists and inspirations that they mentioned on this episode. First up, we have R&B artist, Janae Aiko, as well as Plays and Playwrights, Citrus by Celeste Jennings, Is God Is by Alicia Harris, as well as Mafaniso Udafia, who wrote the Othello translation. Last but certainly not least, we have a quote from Octavia E. Butler, actually from a series, the Earthseed series, that my sister and I are coincidentally listening to right now on audiobook. This quote is from the first book in the series, Parable of the Sower. All that you touch, you change. All that you change, changes you. The only lasting truth is change. God is change. Go out there and make some change, dampers. See you next time. And that's a wrap. Thank you, listeners and our guest, for sharing the space with us. If you don't want to miss our next episode and you'd like to follow our work, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Voices Amped. Voices Amped is part of our arts activism initiative, Voices Amplified. Our team is me, Jenny Benavides, Vanessa Becker-Weig, Ellie Clark, Dr. Margaret McGladry, and our intern and editor, Kennedy Johnson. If you have any questions that you'd like to hear from future guests, or if you ever have questions for us, hit us up on social media or email us on our website, voicesamplified.net. We'd love to hear from you. And remember, you can watch all of our interviews on YouTube if you search and subscribe to Voices Amplified. We'd like to thank Lauren Rourke for our podcast art, Tiffany DuPont Novak for our logo design, and Vanessa Davis for her beautiful underscore, I'm doing okay. You can follow her music at Songwriter Vanessa. We'll see you next time, everyone. Voices Amped is generously sponsored by the Kentucky Foundation for Women. For more information about our guests, podcast content, or if you want to learn more about Voices Amplified, follow our advocacy work or support our 2021 independence campaign. You can visit our website, voicesamplified.net, or visit us on Facebook or Instagram. And remember, be curious, be courageous, take up space, and make some noise.